The wrongfully accused man, the double chase, exotic locations, suave villains, how fight scenes are filmed, and of course, the MacGuffin. These are all tropes we see in spy movies that were pioneered by Alfred Hitchcock. Today, we're going to bring back Tony Lee Morale to help us decode Alfred Hitchcock's influence on spy movie tropes. He joined us on our May 27, 2022 podcast episode when we decoded Hitchcock's Notorious. Tony has published four books on Alfred Hitchcock, including his just released, The Young Alfred Hitchcock's Movie Making Masterclass. Hi, this is Dan. And Tom. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. And today, we want to welcome back to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, Tony Lee Morrell. Welcome, Tony. Hi, Dan and Tom. Great to be back on your podcast, especially to talk about one of my favorite genres, spy movies. Yeah, we're very happy to have you back. And we're going to make sure that as we do this, we want people to understand what's in your new book. And again, your new book is The Young Alfred Hitchcock's Movie Making Masterclass. So for anybody who's trying to write a new screenplay or direct a new screenplay and want to learn from a master, this book talks through Hitchcock's techniques, how he did things from start to finish in making a movie. So can you tell us a little bit about what's in it, who it's for, why you wrote it, and you have the word young in the title. So if you can kind of put that all together for us. Sure. Well, it's a very special centenary this year. Uh, 2022 is a hundredth year anniversary since Alfred Hitchcock did, directed his first movie. It was called Number 13. It was never released because it wasn't finished. But back when he was working for a studio, which was before Paramount, famous players Lasky in Islington in London, he was on the first rung of his ladder to become a major motion picture director. We, we've all got to start somewhere. And that's where he started. And I wrote it because I called it The Young. It's an, a revised edition of my uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Movie Making Masterclass book. But there's about 20% new content in it. And I skewed it very much towards content creators as well. Because in today's world, as you know, because you do podcasts, um, there are a lot of content creators out there on Instagram, on TikTok, on podcasts. And it's much more easy these days for people to make content, whether it's a film, a podcast, a video or short video. So there's an awful lot to learn from Hitchcock's films in creating, writing a script, editing, music, directing and marketing, all of which are essential for today's content creators. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, we know you're the Alfred Hitchcock aficionado. So we want to dive into some of your new book and specifically how Alfred Hitchcock's filmmaking techniques were used in some of his most famous spy movies, The 39 Steps, Secret Agent, Man Who Knew Too Much, North by Northwest, and others. So that'd be great. So, and, and we also want to examine how these techniques are used in other spy movies besides just Hitchcock. He pioneered a lot of these techniques, but let's talk also about where we might see them in other spy movies. So how did Hitchcock set the stage for how many spy movie tropes we're going to look at? Yeah. I mean, we, we love the book. We read it. And we say up front that Hitchcock said, I'm a Puritan and believer in the visual. And that's what I think schools should teach. So often you hear of schools, he said, which send out a student to an eight, with an eight millimeter camera and see what he observes. That's only part of it. As a director and Hitchcock fan, you say David Fincher says, He's playing with all of those things that make cinema fun and magic, the tricks of it. So let's talk about that. Tell us about 
the background of Hitchcock that you talk about up front in the book, his approach to coming up with ideas for movies, how you approached this book. And then let's get into Hitchcock's techniques and how they were used in some of his spy movies and espionage movies. Well, he said it all began with a piece of paper. He loved the idea of a blank canvas. And of course, you, you need a hero, you need a villain. Those were the classic Hitchcock tropes in his spy movies especially. He loved the trope of a wrongfully accused man, which is a very important character in Hitchcock's films and especially in his spy movies. But essentially, he thought it was very essential for the hero or the wrongfully accused man to have a goal. And that's good storytelling. So this this character has to get from A to B or has to prove A to B or he's running from somewhere. And also the chase movies, obviously very important in Hitchcock's films and spy movies. And if you think of a classic chase movie, I always think of The 39 Steps, which was one of his original films in 1935. Um, and it really put Hitchcock on the map, not only in the UK, but also in America. It was a big hit, especially in New York and LA. And had a wonderful um, character actor, Robert Donat, as the wrongfully accused man. It had a great villain, the three finger, three and a half fingered man, and it had a duplicitous or um, blonde who was very difficult to get to know, but had fire under her eyes with Madeline Carroll. So all of those essential characters, you've got the wrongfully accused man, you've got the debonair villain who's often charming, and that's a whole character trope we can talk about in other spy movies, and um, because. Hitchcock always said evil was seductive, evil was attractive. And so he wanted his villains to have shades of black and white and, and um, grey areas, not just be black and white, have a grey gray character who the, the audience might have sympathy for. In our last podcast, we, of course, spoke about Claude Rains. And there are many other characters like that in Hitchcock's spy movies. And with, with a classic cool blonde who's very ladylike and composed when you first meet Madeline Carroll in the train carriage, but she's slowly being unraveled and unruffled. And Hitchcock loved that, like, like taking his blondes and jumbling them around and seeing how they come out. So all of those ingredients. But to get back to the basics, it all started with an idea and he loved the chase idea, secrets and spies. And when we when we spoke about on our last podcast for MacGuffin, and just to briefly fill in the audience again, the MacGuffin is the object or the thing which the characters are chasing, but the audience don't really care about. It's the engine which drives the plot. So it, you often find that in spy movies. Um, in The 39 Steps, the MacGuffin is actually a person. It's Mr. Memory, the fantastic character, because he's recited the memory to the secret formula of um, a silent aircraft engine. In, in Notorious, we talk about we talk about the uranium ore in the wine bottles. Mm -hmm. In Torn Curtain, the MacGuffin is a secret formula again to an anti-missile. So those are all things which drive the engine of a story. Um, but with classic Hitchcock, classic spy movies, you're just enwrapped in the characters and see how they come out rather than being too concerned about the secrets which the spies are after. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we see with the MacGuffin, we see that in other spy movies as well. I mean, the, the big one here in, in Mission Impossible 3, the rabbit's foot, 
Yeah. They're going for the habits. Who cares? Right? Who what, who cares what it is? Right? They yeah. just something they have to go go after there. So in Red Notice, they went after the three eggs. They were art objects, but it was really more the journey than what they were really going after that was important. So this this concept of the MacGuffin is used quite often in current spy movies, but yeah. it all really had its beginning back with Hitchcock. Yeah. That's correct. It's interesting you mentioned Mission Impossible because John Woo, who did Mission Impossible 2, was a big Hitchcock fan. And I believe it was the the, the formula, the viral formula. Yeah, Bellerophon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he actually modelled it on Notorious. So if you look at it, yep. the relationship between yep. Dougree Scott and Fandy Newton mirrors that of Ingrid Bergman and Claude Rains, with yeah. a Tom Cruise character being Cary Grant. Very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good true. one. Good connection there. Yeah. Now, you t in your book you talk about the fact that Hitchcock liked espionage and the use of spies. But they weren't always, you know, they might have been a wrongfully accused man, like you said. So they might be a civilian. They might be a government agent. So the man who knew too much, the 39 Steps, Notorious, and North by Northwest are all examples of civilians thrust into spy roles, in some cases wrongly accused. But then you've got Secret Agent and Topaz, which these were government spies. Mm -hmm. And at Spy Movie Navigator, we tend to focus on the government spy where Hitchcock actually splits this up pretty pretty heavily in terms of his his use. Let's drive into then what Hitchcock thought about spies. You had a comment in your book about what Hitchcock thought about spies. So can you tell us what that was? He was very, he was very interested in the dichotomy. We we see spies as villains, but he saw them as dichotomous. They're heroes in their own country. They may be villains in our country, and vice versa. But again, it goes to the not wanting just black and white characters. He was very interested in this ambiguity, moral ambiguity, and this grayness. And it's interesting what you were saying also about the wrongfully accused man, because he found it much more interesting if the wrongfully accused man wasn't a spy, but was an ordinary man, an ordinary man thrown into unusual circumstances. He thought this extension for the audience would make them more rela relatable, whether it's Robert Donat, who's a visiting a Canadian Richard Hannay in a in a, the UK in a foreign country for him, or if it's uh, Ben McKenna played by James Stewart and his wife Joe who are on holiday in Marrakesh in The Man Who Knew Too Much, and of course the most classic one, which is modelled after The Thirty Nine Steps, is Cary Grant in North by Northwest as a slick advertising exec yes. who's immediately recognised to be. A, a spy, George Kaplan, a decoy spy, and it embarks on an extraordinary two-hour adventure where he tries to wrongfully uh, unaccuse himself. Yeah, we see that Mission Impossible, of course, uses this trumpet in a little different twist with Ethan Hunt because he is a government agent, but he's wrongly accused by Kittredge and leads us to the double chase concept that we were talking about just a second ago, the double pursuit. And if you could just explain that in a sentence to people, because that's really... A lot of what Hitchcock does here really is in the movies, in the spy movies especially, is this double pursuit concept of why this innocent person who is thought to be the bad guy cannot go to the police and is running from the people who are trying to get him, right? So it is like, well, that, yeah. That, that's correct. I, again, it's all to do with structure. 
one that Hitchcock was very interested. He, he had this great fear of the police. Again, the young Alfred Hitchcock's movie making masterclass. He famously tells the story at the age of five. He was put in jail by his father for um, an infraction to, with a note. He was told to go to the local police station with a note saying, this is what they do to naughty boys. And he was put in a cell for five minutes. Can yeah, that's a true story, right? Five. Yeah. And so <laughs> but this, but this gave him a lifelong fear of the police. So he was very interested in that. Talk, talk about a strict, strict upbringing. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Um, and so... The, the the first chase is a wrongfully accused man trying to prove his innocence by running away from the police physically and mentally, whether it's um, Robert Donat running away from being thought the killer because he's just brought a woman home who herself is a spy um, because she knows uh, about the, the secret formula in Mr. Memory and the, of the uh, free-fingered man. And he has to run away be because he's assumed the killer. But then he's got a double chase because he's chasing his innocence. But then he's he's fa he's found to chase the uh, Mr. Memory or find out what the spies are after, chasing the MacGuffin. And similarly, um, Cary Grant goes on this wild goose chase on the century 20th 20th century limited train, and then to South Dakota to the prairie stop where he famously gets attacked by the biplane, and then ultimately to Mount Rushmore where he ends up in the villain's lair. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's another um, very interesting topic, the villain's lair. There's just been a great book come out called The Architecture of Alfred Hitchcock. And a, a classic villain trope is that these villains often have very slick pads, don't they? Um, modernist houses are very much on the cutting edge, whether it's Mission Impossible 2 on the Sydney waterfront yeah. or the Frank Lloyd, um, Frank Wright Lloyd's uh, house in North by Northwest, which I go into a lot of detail in my book next year on story, storyboards, which is coming out. Yeah, that's going to be a cool book too. We talked about that yeah, before. Yeah, he, he always does storyboards. So that I'm, I'm looking yeah, forward yeah. to that one. Yeah, that's cool. Right. So now we talk about you talk about the double chase and the the um you know and Dan you mentioned that Ethan Hunt has the same type of thing in yeah. Mission Impossible, but now when we have the double chase, there's usually some kind of real chase, and that means that there's action in the movie, and action was very important to Hitchcock, and in your book you talk about that and how he pioneered a lot of what we see in how action is filmed today, versus how it had been being filmed when he started doing this. So spy movies use some of what he does. So can you talk a little bit about how Hitch looked at filming action and especially like fight scenes and that that kind of thing? Sure. Well, with with the action, again, the 39 steps is very interesting. With, with my young Alfred Hitchcock, I was very keen to concentrate on the black and white period because that's where he started his tools and started all the tropes. So he described it as a continuation of little scenes. It's great for content creators today who make short films or videos. If you're on TikTok or Instagram, just looking at the structure of it, he, he called each um, a sequence like a, a little film onto itself. So if you watch uh, Richard Hanai, Robert Donat, 
he goes on to the train and then he goes on to the Scottish moors. He goes to the farmhouse as a classic scene with Peggy Ashcroft, which is a very famous scene, and John Laurie and Robert Donat. And then he goes to the three-fingered um, man's house. And then uh, he's, he gets arrested. He has to escape from a police station. He immediately jumps into a marching band to um, disguise himself from the police. And then he ends up on an oratory platform is mistaken for a speaker and that is just a lot of engine going you know this is Hitchcock and his writer working at Phil Pelt but you need that in action movies to sustain the content I'm sure we can think of many examples like uh, the Born Identity series for example yeah. where it's con constant constant action with the or the James Bond series obviously where they're going from location or from scene to scene to scene and, and that obviously keeps the engine going and sustains the interest. And similarly, in The Man He Knew Too Much with um, James Stewart, he obviously starts in Marrakesh and then he's, he has to go on his own journey through London. Famously, he ends up at the wrong Ambrose Chapel because that's the name um, given to him. It turns out to be a place, um, not, uh, not a man. And then famously ends up in the Albert Hall for that really famous sequence yeah, where yeah. the spies are uh, looking to assassinate a visiting uh, dignitary. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I would say really look at the construction of these Hitchcocks for ideas, for idea generation as well. And obviously that really, you can see many parallels in today's spy movies. So you mentioned, Tony, the, the man who knew too much, and that's the only Hitchcock movie he remade, right? He had the he, 1934, he 1956 version, right? That, that's, uh, and, that's right. And we um, have a we have a podcast episode out on on those movies as well, decoding them both in the same podcast. And talk about how, in that particular example, how Hitchcock presents suspense versus mystery, or I think you use another word for it. And it, there's a difference between creation of suspense and just the mystery that surrounds yeah, I think mystique might have been the other word. Yeah. Sure. I mean, the, the man you knew too much is a great quote. In in 1934, he, he made it um, before the 39 Steps. He said it was made by a talented amateur, a talented um, director. And But the remake, he said, was made by a professional by 1956 because he had all the Hollywood tools at his disposal then, and obviously big stars with James Stewart and Doris Day. Um, but the premise is very much the same, and certainly the climax at the Albert Hall. And this is a great use of suspense and also cross-cutting, just to get into technical film language, and, yes. and the use of shot length as well. Because in the 1956 version, uh, Joe McKenna, Doris Day, who's really really good in the man who knew too much really underrated in, in many films but really shines in uh, the man who knew too much she's a mother whose child has been kidnapped so there's a lot depending on her for this um and she's got this moral ambiguity conf conflict here because this stranger she knows is going to be assassinated but at the same time her son is being kidnapped by the very perpetrators. So does, does she scream out and warn? And so there's great, great um, suspense. And Hitchcock said, suspense is an emotional uh, process, whereas mystery is like a whodunit. Um, but suspense really 
involves the audience, you know, is 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 Doris Day going to scream out? Is she going to save this man's life or is she going to be silent? So you really feel that moral ambiguity and Hitchcock cuts from the orchestra to to Doris Day, to the gun famously peeking through the curtain at the dignitary. And, and so you know, the suspense is ratcheted 100, 100 miles with Bernard Herrmann's music as well. But the key to it is we know the precise moment that the gunshot is going to fire because Hitchcock said it's very important with all suspense to give the audience information. So wow. we know the point in the record where the gunfire is going to be made. Um, uh, he said there's there's no point having anxieties if the audience have nothing to be anxious about. And he gave a very, very famous example of the, the bomb under the table. And so if you have a bomb under the table and you know it's going to go off in five minutes, that's five minutes of suspense. But if it suddenly goes off, that's no suspense, that's surprise or shock if you don't tell the audience. And I'm sure we can find many uh parallels in spy movies of suspense where they've given me the audience information for that yeah and by doing that you're involving the audience in the movie you're really creating the suspense in the viewer's mind and as opposed to just watching something unfold well and something and, and the mystery the magic of hitchcock yeah and if you take a look at like goldfinger the whole thing about when you got the countdown counter going for the nuke device to to blow up inside inside of Fort Knox, it's very similar to this concept of everybody knows that this bomb's going to go off or or, or, or there's going to be a shooting in the man who knew too much, but in, in Goldfinger you see this countdown. It's like, can we stop it? Yeah. James has James Bond has to stop that one. And yeah. here with the shooting, it's like, are we going to be able to stop the shooting or what can we do here? So yeah, it's well, it's similar concept. What did Hitchcock, what was his quote? He said something about there's no suspense in, in a bomb going off. The suspense is in anticipating it, but something like that, right? <laughs> it's like anticipating right. it going off. Yeah. There's where you're involved thinking, ah, what's going to happen next? All right, cool. So as we're talking about the man who too, knew too much here, why don't we keep going a little bit? Because it brings us another thing that Hitchcock liked to inject into his movies that we really see in James Bond, and that's humor, right? Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned in this, the, the man who knew too much in the book, you talk about the whole taxidermy scene and yeah. how you mentioned it as part of action, but it's also a humorous thing that gets added there. We yeah, there are comedic elements in Hitchcock, which, you know, generally you're thinking, now nah, this is not going to be funny, you know, <laughs> when you think of Hitchcock movies. But, right, Tony? He does. Like Tom's saying, he injects this humor in places, strategically. He, he does. And that's why I love The 39 Steps. I think it's a very humorous film. I mean, just a notion of uh, Robert Dona and Madeline Carroll being handcuffed together um, and, like, scrambling across the Scottish Moors and ending up in an inn and having to spend the night together is it's quite risque for 1935. Yeah. And there's that great shot of her taking off her stockings with one hand while still being handcuffed to Robert Dana. So he, you know, he had he had a great sense of humor. He he loved practical jokes. There's a very famous story attached to that, that he um so that Robert Dona and Madeline Carroll got to know each other. That that scene, the handcuffs was filmed on the first day of shooting 
And so they spent a lot of time together and he fam fam famously lost the key to the house <laughs> as, as a practical joke. Um, one, one of the biographers goes a bit far in insinuating it was on purpose and they, they spent hours together. But I, I think it was just for a short Funny. time. Well, well, keys are important to Hitchcock, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, notorious, you've got that shot going to the keys. Now, I want to go back to another shot type, because when we, we talked earlier about action, and if we take action and then inject the fight into that, the technique that Hitchcock uses in Psycho by using a, monta a montage to show the, the killing, and if you think about the fights that we see now, we're in... in Pre-Hitchcock, when you saw a fight, it was pretty much the camera was in the room and people were fighting. And now we've got almost a montage for every fight that you see in a spy movie of, okay, here's an arm going here, here's this going. It's not just we're sitting back and watching them fight. And really, it's I think it comes based out of the work Hitchcock did starting with, with Psycho, maybe before then, but Psycho is the one that's, that comes to mind for me. Yeah, absolutely. And, and another one, I don't know, I remember we discussed it last time, I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but Torn Curtain. Um, Torn Curtain is a very Hitchcock, famous Hitchcock movie when we're talking about fight scenes. Right. Because again, we have a spy, a, a double agent in the Paul Newman character who is pretending to defect over to the Iron Curtain to East Germany to find out from the professor at Ludwig um, University about um, an anti-missile missile formula. And so he's part of a secret organization called uh, Pi, as in Pi in, in the, the Greek alphabet. Mm -hmm. And he goes to a farmhouse and he's followed by this great character actor who plays Gromak, who's, who's part of the um, surveillance or agency in East Berlin. And because the taxi driver is waiting outside for Paul Newman and he, he can't hear him disposing of the threat, the Paul Newman has to kill Gromek with just the tools in the kitchen. And this was Hitchcock was very good at. He was saying, always use your location to the fullest. So if you're in a kitchen, how are you going to kill someone if you don't have a gun? Well, you've got a shovel, you've got a gas oven, um, you've got crockery, you've got pots and pans, you've got a knife. So he he would he, he was a big believer of using the backdrop to its fullest. And again, later on, there's a great sequence in Torn Curtain when he has to escape from the Germans again, when we're in an opera and Julie Andrews and Paul Newman are sitting in the middle of an opera and Paul Newman is surrounded and he has a brainwave to shout fire. So the whole theatre erupts in pandemonium. Um, another classic example is in North by Northwest, the famous auction scene. So Cary Grant similarly is surrounded by the, the two heavies. How is he going to get out? He starts crazily bidding 2000 50p, you know, that's, that's a famous, great scene. Yeah, famous, great scene. And that's such a clever use of location between Hitchcock and his screenwriter, Ernest Lehman, to get the character out of that situation. Yeah, I love that. That's a great, that's a great point. And I think a lot of us would overlook that watching the Hitchcock movies. We just assume this is all flowing along. But to know that secret now and watch these movies and yeah, how he uses location to maximize the locations is it's pretty deep that's pretty interesting stuff that's good stuff all right he also has this tendency sometimes to 
kill off a star actor somewhat early in the movie, right? And we've seen examples of this, like in Psycho and so on. And so why did they do that? And and what are some of the, there's other modern, I'm sure, spy movies that have used this kind of action as well. Like may, maybe Mission Impossible comes to mind and so on. What, that, that's, what was, that's what was right. it thinking? <laughs> well, if you have a big star like Janet Lee in Psycho, she was a bigger star um, from Vera Mars at the time or John Gavin or Anthony Perkins. She she was a marquee star in 1959. She was yeah. heavily promoted in the posters, often wearing just her brassiere, famously, an ordinary working girl's brassiere. And so people identified with her and they never think she'd die 40 minutes into the movie. Um, but Hitchcock was so clever at doing that. He gave the, the lead actress the part. And so the audience were just stunned after that. And then anything could happen. Where Where's this direction going to go yeah. after you kill off your main star? And so the audience sympathies transfer to the killer, which was classic Hitchcock um, ambiguity again. So we latch on to Anthony um, Perkins' character, Norman Bates, because he, he's the only other identifiable <laughs> uh, case. And so we, we, we see this as well in other spy movies. Um, you mentioned Mission Impossible. Um, in the 1996 version, obviously, Kristen Stott, Scott Thomas dies in the first, um, you know, scenes of the movie and as well as the other stars. And so um, Tom Cruise has just lost his whole platoon. And so what, what's going to happen next? So, again, we attach ourselves to the Tom Cruise character for the rest of um, of the movie. And, and Steven Soderbergh was a big Hitchcock fan. He did the same with the virus thriller contagion mm. he killed off a lot of big stars Gwyneth Paltrow uh Kate Winsler early, early on in the film and again it's just to keep create this really unsettling unease and so the audience are on their toes you know anything can happen Any, anyone could be killed off at any minute yeah <laughs> that does surprise you certainly in Psycho it does and so Hitchcock creates this sense in the viewer then that like you said that what's going to happen next if this this happened already. That's pretty, pretty compelling and draws you in. I mean, some of the James Bond stuff. Now we see the some of the main stars get killed at the end of the movie, like in Skyfall with M, and of course, No Time to Die. We see a couple of characters getting killed, but that's that's an interesting little twist on Hitch. So he always had a purpose. Whatever he's doing, there's no fluff in his movies. Every scene, whether you were talking about like the camera angles, the length of the camera shot. Sometimes I think it is something very important to pay attention to and what he's trying to do with that kind of thing. Maybe talk a little bit about that before we go into the next set. Uh, the camera stuff in Hitchcock movies, whether they're long shots like we see in Notorious and The Key or other shots, it's tremendous work and draws the audience into the movies. So if you could talk about the different kinds of things. I know we talked about the montage kind of thing and the... The, the moving from one scene to another scene. But if you could talk about the camera stuff just for a second in how this worked into these spy movie stuff. Sure. Um, so in the 39 steps, there's a very famous um, match cut or match shot. So after the landlady has discovered the body of the spy who's killed in Richard Hannay's um, flat in London, Hitchcock cuts from her scream 
to the the scream of the engine, the train engine. It's just a great kind of uh, match cut going from a close up of a woman screaming to the train whistle screaming. That's a very famous shot. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah that's, that's, that's a great one. <laughs> great one. Um, uh, and another very famous or very use of good use of a camera. Hitchcock loved forms of transport. One of his favorite uh, modes of transport was train travel. And again, we've seen so many spy movies on trains and fights on trains, whether oh. it's uh, yeah James Bond or um, uh, Jason Bourne, or, or, or even the, the, the new film, I don't know if you've seen it, called Bullet, uh, which is with- The bullet Brad, train, yeah. Yeah, with, with yep. Brad, Brad, Brad Pitt. Yep. Um, and so that, again, all started with Hitchcock's love of trains, especially with 39 Steps. And he kept the camera inside the train when he showed establishing shots. So if you look at it carefully, and in North by Northwest, he never left the train to do um, what he called unnecessary establishers. It would be a cow's point of view if you saw the train just going across the field. You, you take the audience out of the moment. So he kept the camera inside the train, and he would just move it slightly just out of the window to see the curve of a train as it goes into a tunnel or goes through scenery and so that that intimate closure you both get your establishing shots but you keep the audience inside with the characters and that was really important the geography of a camera or the, his most famous um trademark shot was a forward point of view tracking shot where the camera assumes the point of view of a character and moves forward whether it's going to discover something suspenseful or whether it's going to pick up a key or or if a character's going to pick up some money or the camera camera sees something again in J James Stewart in Rear Window is a very famous example of this. But many, many other examples of those Hitchcock point of view shots. Yeah, and, and all of that, these techniques that he used, which we just watch and assume, that draws the audience into the scene and into the movie more than like you're saying a long shot or whatever so i mean that's just tremendous stuff that we just take for granted watching the movie but when you think about it for a second like we're doing now it's like well that's just fabulous stuff well that's and you have a great creative. you have a great description in the book about the vertigo shot and how he had thought about it years earlier and wasn't couldn't quite figure out how to do it and then when he made vertigo how he, i don't want to give it away right read the book <laughs> <laughs> it's in there and it's, it's really incredible. well it's really well described now you also were talking there just about the action staying inside the train so we saw that in the lady vanishes the 39 steps and north by northwest james bond in from russia with love all the action stays in the train when they're when they're doing the train stuff but then it's like people didn't listen to what hitchcock was doing and in mission impossible in Octopussy, in Skyfall, we see action outside the train. People on top of the train, people, you know, if you ever saw Silver Streak, they kept getting, the one guy gets keeps getting, Gene Wilder's character keeps getting thrown off the train, and he's trying to figure out how to get back on. Do you think that this action on the train helps, or the fact that, you know, Hitch liked to keep everything inside, was that more intimate, and is that more suspenseful? 
I, I think so. Also a changing product of the time because Hitchcock famously loved studio filming. He he didn't like location filming just because there are so many uncontrollable um, factors, especially the weather and the lighting. Um, so on a practical level, but he was very good at characterization and drama and suspense and intimacy. And if you look at something like Murder on the Orient Express, when he never wanted to do an Agatha Christie because he he thought that was just mystery or who done it. He didn't think it was suspenseful. But I don't know if you saw the um, Kenneth Branagh's remake, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, he 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 did some very unusual angles in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have I would have loved to have seen Hitchcock direct. Um, uh, Hercule Poirot, even though he wasn't interested, because they they are almost chamber pieces, aren't they? In their intimacy, but often they're just two people talking as a detective is figuring out or inter- interrogating the victims. But I think Hitchcock just took it to another level. I mean, I I did I do love those films. Skyfall is one of my favorite James Bonds, actually. I think it, it's just everything's working in terms of a characterization and the plot, and so. Um, those, those kind of grand suspense scenes, um, they, they just weren't at his disposal, really, in, in the 1930s. If you look at the 39 Steps, it's on the Scottish Moors, but much of it is actually on a soundstage. And it, it doesn't matter because you're so invested in Robert Donat and Madeleine Carroll. He's so good at casting those two actors. You're just really caught in their mini chamber drama as they're pulling each pulling each other through the, the the Scottish Moors. Yeah. Now they did some on location stuff, right? The man who knew too much, nineteen thirty four, Switzerland. They were did a lot of that in Switzerland, right? And uh, that, that's right. Um, they they filmed um some some of the scenes in Saint Moritz because Hitchcock and Alma went on honeymoon there, and they famously returned every Christmas. They loved it so much in that part of Switzerland. But a lot of the thirty, um, the man who knew too much is miniatures. So if if you look at, <laughs> and it doesn't really matter in black and white because, again, that's just part of its endearing appeal. And Hitchcock loved using the techniques at the time. And you again, you've always got to relate it to the time it was made, like nineteen sixty two. When we look at the birds, we might laugh at the special effects to see through them, but they were very pioneering at the time. Yeah, uh, the lady vanishes too. He's in the yeah. sets, the little model sets and stuff. <laughs> well, I, I just I just saw the birds the other watched the birds the other day, and it was like, man, that really is good. It is. So, so th- it's interesting because you had made the comment that he likes to do did do like to do a lot of the filming on set, yet some of the places he took us to in terms of Switzerland and Morocco, Morocco, I yeah. I think kind of set the stage for what we see in many spy movies. Where they're going all over the world. That's and, right. And, and I think that Hitch kind of helped set that stage with some of this. Especially in the 1950s with this division, mm-hmm. because at the time, if you recall, you know, cinema was really fighting the advent of television. So it was trying to attract audiences. And mm-hmm. so one way to do that was to go on foreign locations. And you've got this division widescreen. And so it would be very glamorous to go to Marrakesh with James Stewart and Doris Day. It'd be very glamorous um, uh, to go uh, to London um, with that movie as well. In in Topaz, which was made in 1969, uh, they didn't go to Cuba because they weren't allowed, but they filmed in Florida as the substitute of the Cuba uh-huh. and brought in palm trees. I, inter- I interviewed Karen Dorr 
the actress and she told me about that story and they went to Paris and they they went to Copenhagen so that globetrotting appeal was a way to bring in audiences to the cinema obviously to get people away from television and obviously the James Bond films and all the spy movies replicate that recently saw the Jurassic Park 4 um, and that similarly follows a, a similar globe trotting, trotting idea. So obviously the local locations, and if you look at other spy movies made during that time, from Russia with Love, Charade in 1963, which was a, a Donan film uh, with Cary Grant and Audrey Hepburn, again, that globe trotting appeal. Yeah, especially in the 50s and early 60s when people were not traveling like they travel now. This brought them to locations they could probably never see in their lives. You know, so that was kind of cool. In Foreign Correspondent, did they actually do anything in Holland with the windmills or was that all set? <laughs> it, it, um, I believe it was, again, was miniatures. And that's a very famous example of using um, the location or using the uh, props because the windmills are turning in the wrong direction, which is a signal um, for the spies, but it's a, it's a great great use of character location. Yeah. Okay. That's fun. Okay. While well, we're talking about locations, you also talk in the book about how Hitchcock liked to f shoot inside of houses and let you see what people do in houses. And you gave an example from Vertigo. Well, Vertigo obviously set in San Francisco, but I go into detail a lot in my storyboard book next year because. The design, he was very keen to characterize people's homes. So when you're in Scotty's apartment in Vertigo or Midge's apartment or, or Gavin Elster, who's the villain of a piece, when we see him in this beautiful library and he's a shipping magnet, beautiful oak rich furniture, it immediately sets the stage for the character. Um, and so fam famously, there's a production designer for Vertigo Henry Bumstead, who who knew to give these characters tropes. So if you look carefully in Vertigo's, um, James Stewart's character is a policeman. He wouldn't read much. So originally he was filled the room with books and but Bummy, his name was Henry Bumstead, Bummy was told, oh, is this a learned man? And it, no, he's not a learned man. He wouldn't have time to read books. So he made James Stewart's character a stamp collector he thought he'd be more keeping so if you look closely it's there in the background on one of his bureaus the stamp collecting set and so it's giving those details obviously to the the heroes and villains of the piece and what we spoke earlier um, about the famous uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house it's a modernist house it above it's uh, uh, designed after a very um famous house uh, from a designer of uh, falling water. Mm -hmm. And so it's all glass minimalism. Glass was very important. So Cary Grant could see either Mary Saint in the, in the top bedroom and he knows he has to get to her and he throws the matchbook down to her. The geography is superb. And when, when, <laughs> when he says they're on to you and she looks up and has to go back to her room. So he really thought about the geography of the house and the use of um, props and tools and even when Cary Grant crosses the landing he's spotted by the housekeeper in the tv set yes. in the reflection yes so yes. It's, it's all carefully choreographed yes and again the camera angles there too were terrific with yeah. the balcony scene and the matches and oh yeah, yeah terrific stuff so and, then, and seeing the stamp collection in vertigo 
brings me to on her majesty's secret service right because there's a scene when james bond goes into m's house yes and m is working on his and i'm going to get this word wrong again lepidoptery i think i actually got it that time which is butterfly cur- which is butterfly collecting and so to me when i was reading what you were saying about the stamp collecting in vertigo I instantly was drawn to what they did in On Her Majesty's Secret Service with the butterfly collecting. I'm not going to attempt trying to say that word twice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to one of my favorite things in the Hitchcock movies that he added that I think to spy movies that we see forever now, the suave, charming, or sympathetic villain. All right, one of my favorite all-time villains is Fran Sanchez in License to Kill. He's played by Robert Davi. And we actually interviewed Robert Davi, spent an hour and a half with him yesterday, and a lot of fun. He was a, he was a great guy. And then we got Kamal Khan, Max Zorin, Elliot Carver, and others from James Bond movies as well. Maybe Major Dalby and Colonel Stock, which we love from Funeral in Berlin, Harry Palmer movies. So how did Hitchcock do this? Why did Hitchcock do this? And why did he like this approach to villains? And what are some examples? Sure. Um, it goes back to what I said earlier. He he loved grey, um, grey characters. Black and white is boring, you know. He, he he said he wanted to avoid the cliche all the time, like the villain with a twirling moustache or the black cat down the alley. And so, again, right back to the 39 Steps, you have Godfrey Turl as a three-fingered man living in this beautiful mansion, very, very debonair. You've got James Mason living in that lovely house in north by northwest yes um uh, you've got ray Milland in dialogue for murder who's oh, yeah. a, a very suave and sophisticated murderer um with his wife grace kelly who he tries to murder um a very famous hitchcock film in shadow of a doubt and so you had joseph cotton as the mysterious uncle charlie who who um infiltrates the family again and has a big impression on niece charlie and so he wanted to give, he said, evil is seductive. If, if you, how could a murderer or a villain get close to his victims if he was, wasn't charming, wasn't seductive? Famously, Robert Walker in Strangers on a Train, who's um, very, very kind of suave and talkative, or the Joseph Cotton character in Shadow of a Doubt, who's actually the merry widow murderer, and so he can get close to his victims. And so it, it was just a way, again, avoiding the cliche. There's also the Bob Rust character in, Fre- in Frenzy and even somewhat um, Anthony Perkins in Psycho because he comes across very much as a boy next door in that heart-to-heart chat with Janet Lee just before he murders her in the shower. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that was a very underlining reason. And you can really see that in a lot of by movies. But there's a real trope in especially in the james bond to give a villain a scar or um you know some facial disfigurement like inspector or even yeah. skyfall with javier barden but i actually think javier barden's great villain because he oozes charisma and charm yeah, there's yeah, not one yeah. well there's not one person in the audience who leaves skyfall without you know having a javier barden big impression again that's great casting of the actor yeah. but again unfortunately i think Facial deformity, going right back to Jaws in Moonraker and the Spy Who Loved Me is is a is a classic um, James Bond trope. 
But again, there, there are villains, and I'm sure you know, who are very attractive and charming, like Scaramanga or um, those, those kind of villains in the, the James Bond films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even 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 Goldfinger tries to have a little class with how he does things. Yeah, right. he's, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Ruthless. Yeah, he's a charming guy. Yeah, yeah. What about Claude Rains here in uh, in Alex Sebastian as Alex Sebastian and Notorious? I mean, you almost are on his side. You, know, you feel so bad for him. <laughs> you do you know? feel bad for him. He got totally played. <laughs> yeah, by both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now let's jump back to your book. The young Alfred Hitchcock's movie making masterclass, and the way you have this, and I want to talk about the the structure of the book a little bit here, instead of just talking about Hitchcock, how Hitchcock worked. Let's talk about how your book works a little bit, because you've set this thing up for the new writer or the director to go through the process of making a movie the way Hitch did it, and you start out with coming up with a story, writing the screenplay, pre-production, working with actors using the camera to get the audience to see the story, editing and sound, which we really haven't talked about today, and then finally getting the movie out and publicity and stuff like that. So why did you structure it in that format? I, th- I think that's the idea. That's um, a kind of progression way to do a filmmaking or content creating. As we said at the beginning of the podcast, you have an idea, that blank piece of paper, and then you've got to write a story. And Hitchcock was very detailed about pre-production and pre-planning. So uh, alongside the scriptwriter, he would often commission a storyboard artist to do key scenes for him. And then you've got your pre-production and then you start filming or you start your audio work and then the the post-production. So it was really just a logical uh, progression to make make content these days. I mean, there may be different ways to do it now, but most of the time you start with an idea. And um, he famously said the script, the script, the script are the three most important things in filmmaking. It's like real estate. (laughs) (laughs) Location, location, location. All right. You have a section in your book, Tony, called Give Your Audience Information. So let's talk about that for a second, because as we're watching movies, we're, we don't think about stuff like that. We're just watching the movie and absorbing it, enjoying it or not enjoying a movie. But here you have a whole section dedicated to give your audience information, which was one of Hitchcock's things. Can you explain that a little bit and how that works? Sure. It goes back to um, the idea of suspense. You've got to give the audience information to be suspenseful he often quoted his 1936 film sabotage where when the bomb goes off on the bus and kills a little boy and his dog and that was a mistake killing a boy to begin with but he didn't give enough information it goes to the story of the bomb under the table if it suddenly goes off um that shock that's not suspense but if you tell the audience there's a bomb under this table you're going to get five minutes worth of suspense and one, one of the most famous suspenseful scenes, obviously, is the prairie stop in North by Northwest. Yes. And so we know Cary Grant is being sent there by Eva Mary Saint. And we know that she's not up to no good. We don't know she's a double agent yet. But we've seen that note delivered to James Mason in the neighbouring uh, car carriage saying what do I do with him in the morning so mm-hmm. uh, we, know, we know that she's on the phone we, um, we don't know that she's on the phone to Leonard the henchman as yet but we know something's not right and so 
there's that really sinister line which um, the man waiting at the bus stop says to Cary Grant, that's funny, there's a plane dusting crops where there ain't no crops. And so, you know, that sh- <laughs> shivers down your spine. And so we see out of the blue this um, biplane come and attacks Cary Grant in a very suspenseful nine-minute sequence. And yes. a lot of it is no dialogue, which is masterful. Again, this harks back to the young Alfred Hitchcock's use of um, silent film. He started off on silent films, obviously. And famously, the crop duster attack is emulated in From Russia with Love yes. and many other Hitchcock films since then. I, I can think of also um, The Spy Who Loved Me. I think there was a, another yeah. helicopter attack there when, against the underwater car. Um, and so, yes, but it, it's just a great way to involve the audience if you give them that information so they're on the edge of their seats. Yeah, I, I think, like we said before, this is what draws you in. And really, you, you're not you're watching the movie. You're not paying attention. You're not thinking that, wow, this is masterful directing. You're just like, you're sucked into the movie and you think, I love this. And you don't know why. Now we know why. That's good. Okay, so now, so we've talked about the structure of the book a little bit here. And you've told some of the, some of the stories of, that are in the book. But as I said before, there's a lot in this book. And we yes. don't want to give it all away here. In the, I mean, listening to this podcast episode should not be your end all on this because there's a lot in this book that Great. I really, really enjoyed it. Really uh, fun read. <laughs> and I like the way that you use the questions at the end of the chapter. You're calling this a master class. It kind of has a school book feel to it with, with that kind of stuff that the student who's okay. taking the master class should be able to learn well by completing those sections at the end. So I thought that was really well done. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, Tony, we loved reading your book. We really enjoyed it. It's masterful in its own right and brings out so many nuances of the Hitchcock films that I think people are going to enjoy reading. So if people want to order this book or any of your books, what should they do? The easiest place is on Amazon to get the new book, The Young Alfred Hitchcock. It's on It's on a discount price. It's only $14.99 for a paperback. Or two ninety nine for Kindle, oh, great. Um, and so I'm very very proud of the cover. That's uh, Hitchcock on the set of uh, Shadow of a Doubt in 1942, taken by a famous photographer. And there's there's more of him on the back cover as well. And so it just really epitomizes again the youthfulness. He he said he was very much aimed at the young young people, despite. He said, when people say I'm 70, that's a damn lie. I'm twice 35, that's all, twice 35. And so he always had that youthful exuberance, um, which, as we've discussed in his films. Yeah, that's fantastic. So everyone, be sure to check out this book and Tony's other books. Just search Tony Lee Morrell, that's M-O-R-A-L, on Amazon, and you will find them all. Well, we'd like to thank you, Tony, for joining us again, and we wish you all the best with your new book. It was fantastic. We really enjoyed reading it. Thank you again. We'd love to have you back. I'd love to come back. Thank you. All right. Well, that's a wrap. This has been Dan. And Tom. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. Please subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. That helps us do more episodes. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.